Hey, everybody. Um, this is Amanda, and I'm back for episode number two of the Made for TV Mayhem show. And I'm back with Dan and Nate. And tonight is a very special episode. But before we go into that, um, I want to say, for whatever reason, whenever we schedule these podcasts, somebody I love dies. So um, oh, no. on, on on Saturday, uh, Jackie Collins passed away. Oh, yes. Um, one of my favorite people of all time. And so eventually we won't do a next episode because we've already been pushing stuff back. But um, I think we'll have to do a Hollywood Wives podcast um, in tribute of her because I love that movie. But it's six hours long, so it's kind of a commitment. Uh, but it's really good if you really like uh, wide shoulder pads, big hair, um, and like Stephanie Powers. It's probably the best movie um, for you. So, um, but let's get on to other stuff. Um so we're here today to pay tribute to Wes Craven. Well, first of all, let me say hi to, um, I'm sorry, I'm a little, I have a cold here. I'm at the tail end of a cold. Let me say hi to my podcast partners. Um, Dan is here with us. Hi, Dan. Hello, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Ready to ready to talk about Mr. Craven. And his, have uh, you watched any TV movies aside from Wes Craven films? Uh, yeah, actually, this, this, um, this weekend I watched Isn't It Shocking? Oh, so good. And um, uh, Mary Hartman, Louise Lasser. And yes, I had, that, I, I thought it was fantastic. That's another one that Nate – I know Nate's seen that. Yes, I'm, I'm in huge trouble too when I admit this, but I wasn't the biggest fan. I remember that. I, you talked about it on your podcast. I love the cast. I think the cast is amazing, but – I don't know. I've I've never been a fan of movies where it focuses, I guess, a little more on the investigation. Right. Mm, sure. So I think that's yeah. my problem. That's most TV well, movies, Nate. For some reason, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, others might be able to get away with it. More. <laughs> maybe, maybe it, it's. But um, and also, Nate's here from Hysteria Continues. Um, I want to uh, I want to mention that Ruth Gordon plays the oldest final girl I've ever seen. Oh, yes. And isn't it shocking? And she, I mean, we're talking she's even decades ahead of Roz Kelly in New Year's Evil. <laughs> so, she's so it's, and this, I, the thing I really liked about it, isn't it shocking was it turned out that Louise Lasser is hot. I didn't, from Mary, Hart, Mary Hartman, she's <laughs> yes. so odd looking. But in this, it's like when she's flirting with Alan Alda, it's like, hey, Louise. She's really lovely, yeah. And you can yeah. tell that some of it's improvised, like that scene at the end. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just, you can tell they're just kind of rolling with it. And they're so good together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Nate, have you seen watched any TV movies that aren't Wes Craven movies? Um, mostly, I think I focused on um, Wes Craven. The only thing that I did watch is I come across the first episode of Fresno. Since you oh. talked about, oh it last wow, time. okay. Oh, I'm I'm loving it so far, so I can't wait oh, to good. finish it. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, it's really good. I mean, I haven't seen it since it probably originally aired, but I know Dan watched it not too long ago. Yes, yes. I really like it. I, I think I think it's a lot of fun. It it actually it it tells a it it compacts like an entire soap opera into uh, what is it five hours or six hours or something like that. And I think it's it it really does. I think a pretty nice shot. And it never if I it it never does like goes like an airplane route where it goes crazy. It's it's some it's sometimes a little more subtle where and sometimes it isn't. But uh, sometimes <laughs> you can't be that subtle and be Carol Burnett. That's true, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, part of it is just how overt and broad mm-hmm. I think some of the humor is. And 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 the one guy there who's always walking around without a shirt on, I forget. Uh, 
Wow, wow. Oh. Yes, yeah, he's great. He's great. He just the mystery man with no shirt. He's awesome. <laughs> well, we always like mystery man with no shirts. Mm. At least here we do. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Um, okay, so uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little off today. Like I said, I have a cold, but so um, I feel like I'm getting a little rocky here already. So we'll just jump into it. Uh, so Wes Craven is not actually as you know, well-known for his uh, television work, but he was actually behind the scenes on television a lot. Like, I was really surprised, and I wish I'd wrote down the title of it now. He actually did a sitcom with Jeffrey Jones uh, in the 90s, and the opening for it, and I wish I'd written it down like an idiot I didn't. Um, There's The opening for it is on YouTube, and it looks insane. It's about a guy whose imagination turns real, like the most awkward moments. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, if he's upset at his wife and he's thinking something about her, then that thing happens to her. Mm-hmm. And hilarity ensues. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea. Yes. I had no idea he was even attached to anything like that. So wow. um, so he's a, he was a really interesting character. And, of course, he did Nightmare Cafe and he mm-hmm. did some Twilight Zones. But he also did four pretty solid TV movies. And until recently, I was only familiar with three of them and actually hadn't even really been familiar with the fourth one. But we're going to talk about all four of them tonight um, yes. in chronological order. And um, we're going to have just a little breakdown of each movie, a couple sound bites, and some discussions. Um, what's so great about Wes Craven's movies is that by and large, they are really watchable. Um, they might be of varying quality in the terms of classic television, but they're always easy to sit down and spend some time with. He was uh, just a really amazing kind of popcorn filmmaker, and I think that there's still a lot of thought in some of his films. So there's a couple of themes I want to bring up as we do this, um, and hopefully I'll remember to do that and we'll get to them. But just a little background. So Wes Craven was born um, in August, August 2nd, 1939. He grew up in Cleveland. Uh, he had his undergraduate degree was in English and psychology, and he um, later got a master's in uh, philosophy and writing. And he was actually an English professor, and he also taught the humanities in both high school and college before he fell into filmmaking. His early work in the 70s is really notorious. Um, he started off actually working in adult films. I think he was the cameraman. I don't know that he directed anything. I don't really know that aspect, but... Um, And then he ended up teaming up with Sean Cunningham, who is probably best known for making Friday the 13th. And they made a movie in the early 70s called Last House on the Left, which is still to this day uh, one of the most artistic but difficult films for me to sit through. Uh, Actually, today I was listening to the soundtrack while I was making my Wes Craven notes. And even the soundtrack is like beautiful and disturbing at the same time. And that's kind of how I see Last House on the Left. Like to use the word beautiful, it seems maybe wrong in a way but it's a beautifully made film um and it's effective in what it wants to do and um so he shot that out of the park and then his second film ended up being hills have eyes which was not quite as brutal but but fairly intense um and so he to me seemed like the wrong person to make television movies and so i was really surprised that he fell into that so early on but um one thing, and you'll see this thread actually through his TV movies. In his early work, um, he was really interested in the corrupted uh, outsider coming into sort of this idealized family unit. And in Last House and Hills Have Eyes, that family had to uh, revert to sort of these primal instincts to survive 
or to get revenge or whatever was happening. Um, in the TV movies, you see that same thread of corruption, disruption, um, idealized family units, uh, white picket fences, you know, that kind of stuff. But because they were TV movies, they got kind of whitewashed and they have very vanilla endings, but the themes are still there. Um, and I think that they're really interesting. Um, so I think that that might be a good way to go into Summer of Fear because that was his first film that he did after The Hills Have Eyes. It was uh, his first time working with 35 millimeter film. It was his first time working with any kind of like large studio network system. Um, and interestingly enough, the producer of Last House, I think his name was Max Keller, saw either The Hills Have Eyes or Last House and Left and decided that Wes Craven was just a perfect guy to direct this young adult adaptation uh, of Summer of Fear. Uh, which is really odd, but I think perfect. I think it ended up being a really good film. It was the right choice. Um, so this movie did have a DVD release. It is currently out of print, so it's kind of expensive. But if you come across the Artisan, I think, re release, I don't know if there's other releases of it, you need to get it because Wes Craven and Max Keller do a really amazing commentary on it, and you don't get a lot of DVD commentaries. So when you come across that, it's something you should probably um, take advantage of. So um, Dan is, I think, going to give us a breakdown for this movie. I can't remember if we decided if I would help you with this one. I, I can. Uh, do we have a promo? Oh, you're film? right. Thank you. You're so good. Yes, of course, we do. Of course. Well, you've and, had a cold. You've had a cold. <laughs> I have had a cold. Um, so here we go. But if I showed you a wax figure, but if I showed you a wax figure, would you know if it was used for... Well, evil. Sunday at one, strange things happen when cousin Julia comes to stay. Didn't things start to change between us when Julia got here? Her antagonism towards Julia is pretty hard to live with, Rachel. No one will believe her. Linda Blair must convince her family that cousin Julia is a stranger in our house. Sunday at one. Okay. So, awesome. Dan? Uh, I'll just say uh, first off that this movie premiered on Halloween, nineteen seventy-eight, the same day as is it uh, Devil Dog Hound from Hell? I forget. It was one of Devil those. Devil Dog. Uh, yeah. Yes, and I I believe Devil Dog beat it in the ratings, if I remember correctly, what I've read, it which is so. too which is too bad. But this is basically it's a movie about and w just one thing I've only seen this movie in Italian. And I don't speak Italian, so so if if I if I wander off the plot path, um, please guide me back on. But the the story is basically uh, there's a car crash, um, a couple, uh, their housekeeper uh, die in the crash, but the daughter survives. The daughter is Julia, who was mentioned several times in the promo. Um, also, my mother-in-law's name. She's not my mother-in-law, however. Um, and Julia goes to live with. Um, uh, 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 relatives and um, uh, father, mother, two two sons, and Linda Blair. Now, Linda Blair's character is a name. Linda Blair. She's named Rachel. And uh, <laughs> Lee Purcell plays uh, Julia. And um, uh, they're they're kind of ex uh, Rachel's kind of excited about having a another young woman in the house. Um, and Julia's a bit um, sort of frumpy to begin with. And here's something that it may be lost in the Italian translation. They keep mentioning where she's from. Is she from Massachusetts, like Boston or something like well, that? Well, the family is supposed to be from, um, 
somewhere that's not the Ozarks, but they spend summers in the Ozarks. Okay. So when Julia shows up, what's so interesting about Julia is that she has a very deep Southern Appalachian accent. Okay. So uh, but even though she was only supposed to have spent her childhood summers there. So okay. that's the first clue that things aren't quite Something right. Wrong. Yes, I kept I kept hearing the word Massachusetts in Italian, okay, that, that which is right. which is uh, Massachusetts. So it's the same thing. Strangely that enough, well. Um, so, by the way, so, real quick, I just want to say Julia is only frumpy by TV movie standards. Yes, you could tell <laughs> she's, she's beautiful. She, you could tell she's going to unfrump in about five minutes. Yes. So, so they uh, Rachel takes her out with her uh, with her uh, good friend, I uh, played by Fran Drescher, um, who I thought was an Italian actress in the movie, the version I watched. And they all go out and they fix uh, they fix Julia up, the new hairstyle, new new outfit. She's looking good. Everything's going great. And then things start to go a little wrong. Um, uh, the the first big thing is that well one of the first big things is that Julia seems to be interested in Rachel's boyfriend and they've got a big dance or a prom coming up yes and and Rachel wakes up one morning and she has these horrible blotches on her face and she can't go to the dance so the boyfriend takes Julia and that romance begins to develop there's also a problem with the horse that isn't yes. too fond of Julia. The horse can um, spot the evil for sure. Yeah, the horse can basically sort of the way the dogs will run up and, and bark at, you know, the evil person. This horse spots it and um, the uh, the horse, it like breaks a leg during a rodeo thing and they have to put it to sleep. Uh. And gradually, yeah, the, these things sort of accumulate. And at some point, Rachel finds strange um, uh, like hairs from the horse. Yes. And um, – uh, I believe a picture of herself, if I remember correctly, with the that... markings on the face. Without markings on the face, like and, and things get weirder and weirder. And I, I don't, I don't. Are we going all the way with spoiling here? I mean, uh, it's uh... up to you. I actually, since I have a couple sound bites here, let me play the sound bite where um, she first meets McDonald Carey. Who is oh, this yes. uh, occult professor? Well, he's not a occult mm -hmm. professor. He's a professor and who specializes in the occult, and every neighborhood should have one of those. And the, even though this clip is like a minute long, the best part to listen to is at the beginning when they when he says hello to the girls. It's very suave. But anyway, so here is where you start to see that somebody kind of is recognizing that Julia doesn't belong. Africa. Hi, professor. Oh, hi. I want you to meet my cousin. This is Julia Trent. Julie, how do you do? Uh, she's from the Ozarks. Really. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting area, the bed of a lot of folklore and mysticism. I did field studies in that region some years ago. The people are as fascinating as the land. Professor Jarvis is our local expert on the occult. I am an anthropologist, but I guess I have become sort of an authority on, on that subject. I'm not actually from the Ozarks. It was my parents who moved there after I went away to school. and I just spent a few summers there. Interesting. The people there have a very distinctive look. You have the same facial features, the same eyes. That is interesting. So I like that scene for a couple different reasons. Mm -hmm. One, because McDonald Carey is kind of a god. Um, if you'll watch <laughs> Days of Our Lives, he was amazing. Um, also, I think that this movie, I saw this movie as a kid, but not on its original airing. I saw it later on an afternoon movie. And for years, I only remembered a scene at the end in the uh, what's that called? The black room where she develops the film. Oh yeah, the dark. Um, room. The dark room. I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with the term. And um, 
and there the fight ensues. And I remember that really clearly. I just didn't know what movie it was from, but um, it kind of feeds into everything I loved as a kid, which is you've got the neighbor who's into the occult and you've got witches and you've got like a little mystery and it's got that really great music that clues you into exactly that something's not right in case you didn't pick it up mm-hmm. from the actual very comparable, com- competent acting that happens mm-hmm. throughout the film. Um, but I think that that scene for some reason kind of sums up all the things that I love about this film. And that's why I chose it. And I do have a second clip with um, uh, Julia and Rachel kind of duking it out like uh, verbally. I don't know if you want to hear that now, if there's more you want to go into. I, I, I was just going to just add to, to, to take it up to there. Yeah, that uh, Rachel begins to uh, study in on black magic and, and learn a little bit more. But as as this is going on, her family is falling sort of more and more in love with Julia. And it um, and if um, I, it's it's one of those things where like this, this had better be black magic or else Rachel just really can't handle having another gal in the house. So. <laughs> It's yeah, and and it's and eventually yeah. There's um, uh, they um, I I believe that uh, is it Julia. She can't be photographed. Is that is that or seen in the mirror as well? Yes, yes, and that leads up to the scene in the dark room and the confrontation. Yes. Well, this before that confrontation, there's a verbal confrontation in the bedroom, and I just kind of like. I just kind of like the cattiness of it, and I like the way um, Linda Blair emphasizes certain words. I think it's a really fun scene, so here you go. found the wax figure you made a Sundance. What wax figure? One that was in your drawer. Uh-huh. And I found the picture of me that you painted to bring on those hives. Rachel, your imagination's getting the best of you. It's getting so I don't even know what you're talking about half the time. Now I know why Sundance attacked you. I know what you are and what you're doing. Sure you do. Yes, I do. And I'm going to make sure that you leave here. I think your parents might have something to say about that. They don't realize what you are. I do, and I'm able to prove it. A picture with spatter paint doesn't prove anything except that you were determined to turn everyone against me. And why, I don't know. I tried to be friends with you. Oh, come on. Your family will know that you put the paint there. They love me. They're not going to believe your crazy accusations. They're not crazy. I'm able to prove them. You know, you're acting real strangely. We're all worried about you, Rachel. I'm not going to my parents alone with this. I'm taking somebody with me. You'll know what the picture means in a minute. You don't know anybody like that. Oh, don't I? He's from the university. He knows a lot about witchcraft, and he's a good friend of my parents. Professor Jarvis? You mean that old man across the road? wouldn't count him if I were you. So she totally doomed Professor Jarvis right there. Yeah. That was a bad decision on her part to just get <laughs> yeah. away who's going to help her. Yeah. <laughs> I know somebody's going to help me. He lives at 529 Elm Street. <laughs> He's home between 7 and 10 every night. <laughs> He's a little old man. Uh. <laughs> I just really like that scene. And also I think it's really yeah. good acting, but there's like the, the emphasis on certain words because they're angry and I, I just, it kind of sticks out to me. It's really just well done. It's a lot of fun. And um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, at this point the film builds and builds up to the final revelations of uh, what exactly Julia is. 
Uh, if she's anything but a regular young woman, I'm not going to tell you, although we'll probably tell you in a minute. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so it builds up to that. And it's really it's it's very entertaining. And it's it's a it's a so it's, it's a very fun movie. Yes. Um, just just a little bit of trivia. I don't have too much. But this uh, was apparently shot in the Hidden Hills of California, which I guess the Hidden Hills is the name of the world place. And the house that they shot it in was actually owned by Sinbad for a period of time. Wow. The, wow. Yeah. Huh. That's that's pretty good trivia. It's, it's just straight off Wikipedia. But that's, I thought it was yeah, yeah. I, I was actually thinking of your the theme you had about the the corrupted individual coming yes. into the family, and I was thinking um, the the perfect TV movie way to deal with a corrupted individual in your house is to get in a crazy Rockford Files car chase, which is how <laughs> yes, uh, which is how this movie ends, which I loved. I had no idea it was going to end in a car chase. It was a nicely done car chase. It's kind too. of intense. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of intense how they did it. Um, you know what's really interesting is, and this movie has not connected to this movie at all but there's a movie called are you lonesome tonight with parker stevenson it's a usa original mm -hmm. and that movie is all about the class system and how certain people can't get into certain classes no matter how hard they try and in are you lonesome tonight it's about a call girl and no matter how expensive she is and how much money she saves and how well she invests her money and acts she's still she's never going to be part of the elite and that kind of leads to like um death and destruction for everyone and but it's really interesting and so i see that kind of happening here yeah. uh with less death i guess but um that it's it's like no matter what julia does it's not and i don't know how i feel about the message of that exactly but it's yeah. sort of like you're an outsider and you're never going to fit in no matter what you do and so she has to actually resort to witchcraft you know, and so in that scene we just heard, what's really interesting, she says, I tried to be your friend. And I think at the beginning, there is an honest, like, I'm going to be their cousin, and I'm going to live this wonderful life. And I'm going to, you know what I mean? And I'm yeah. going to fit in, and I'm going to wear these pretty clothes and go out with these good looking guys and live in this beautiful gated community. And but it's just never going to happen. And then it kind of leads to like all this destruction. So it's kind of interesting in a lot of ways to me that Wes Craven, even though he didn't write the script and was just hired to make it, that he ended up making a film that I think really ties in well to his first two films. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And if you want to have an outsider, I guess you you yeah, you you have a bunch of beautiful people in Hidden Hills and then mention that the person is from the Ozarks or not supposed to be from the Ozarks a lot. That's a good way to. Uh, right. Le leave someone out. Yeah, it is. Um, Nate, so uh, I'm assuming you've seen this. Yes, I have. And? I saw it um, a long time ago. Um, on v It was on VHS, actually. I think the first time I watched it. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, it's probably my favorite Wes Craven made-for-TV film. Um, I just, um, I, I like the characters. I love Lee Purcell as... Yes. Um, you know, as the bad guy. I mean, she was just so much fun, especially at the end. I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their hair got. <laughs> <laughs> and any any movie, like, uh, if you know, especially if a female's the villain, um, their hair gets really big at the end when you find out what's really going on and who the evil villain is. That made it I, tough because everyone had big hair. That's true. It's, I mean, it was hard. Outdo Linda Blair's like big frizzy perm. Oh my God, <laughs> Linda Blair's perm was intense. Mm -hmm. 
Especially in the fight in the dark room when they're pulling each other's oh, hair. Yeah. There's a lot to pull. So. Yes. yes, there is. My favorite part of that fight, though, is when she's coming at her with the scissors and you hear Linda Blair go, get away from me with those scissors. <laughs> <laughs> I just see the bad guy going, oh, you're right. This is too far. And yeah. the scissors and fighting. <laughs> One step beyond. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. I mean... You know, I, I was trying to kill you, but I guess scissors is too far. You're right, you're right. I mean, you remember that comedian? I think she was in the late 80s or early 90s. And I wish I could remember her name. And she said, you know, why do people say be careful? Like I'm going to be walking in the streets and someone tries to mug me. And I say, no, I chose to be careful. You know what I mean? It's like, what does that even mean, that phrase? And you got to love any car chase that ends with a car exploding before it even really hits <laughs> the side. Yeah, that's good. That's actually a common trope, isn't it? In, it is. It in, totally is. Yeah, in television. And then every once in a while, there'll be a car car crash like that, and the car won't explode. And you sit there thinking, did something go wrong? Shouldn't that have burst into flames? Flames, yeah. <laughs> right. Did, have either of you read the book? No, no. have you? Oh. Yes. Oh, and? Um, it, the, the movie, I thought, the main storyline, you know, it follows it pretty closely. I know that there's some differences, like, Rachel, it's not a horse in the book, it's a dog. They did that for Linda Blair. Um, If you listen to the commentary on the DVD, Wes Craven actually says that, you know, Linda Blair's a huge animal lover. That's no secret. And she had a special affinity for horses. So when I guess they decided to cast her, or maybe in the conversation with her when they were looking to hire somebody, she had mentioned horses. And they thought, well, you know what? Let's change that. And they actually applied it to her love of horses. Mm. Okay. I can, yeah, I can see why they do that. Because the horse does act very much like um, uh, dog acts in a later yes. film that we're going yes. to discuss. So, yes. In fact, I thought there uh, – when I was thinking about it this morning, I kept thinking, is there a dog in Summer of Fear also or is it just the horse? I couldn't remember. I only remember many... the horse. Yeah, I, yes. I think that's right. Yeah. And I love uh, – and I don't know what we're doing regarding spoilers or anything, but I love – uh, the last shot of the film. Uh, I love the way they ended it. Do you mean the very, very last shot where you just see her eyes and the smoke, or do you mean the shot where you actually see her somewhere else getting a job? Somewhere else getting a okay. job. Okay. Yeah, it's um, she's really attracted to really big uh, houses that look like Mexican restaurants. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think oh. she's just jumping around till she finds a family she can fit in with? You know, that's a good question, because mm-hmm. if, if, like, you think of it, if you view it, I guess the way I view it, she's kind of sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think you might be right. I think maybe that's what she's looking for. I don't think it's money or power necessarily. Well, maybe some power, but, um, but that's not the end game. I, I actually think the end game is to like, just get the heck out of the Ozarks and to like have a family, you know? Mm-hmm. Although you I don't know. I mean, let's reanalyze that because, um, like she's seducing the dad hardcore, mm-hmm. right? That's not cool. Yes, that's not cool. No. I guess she gives she gives him a couple days, and then if it's not going to work out, she just pulls out the black magic, and she's gonna. Yeah, I'm trying. To, I'm starting to. I'm starting to change my thought about her because now I'm thinking about the dad oh. scene, and it was also really weird that the that the brother had a crush on her because it was her cousin. Oh, that was for his cousin. Yeah, yeah. That, that always stands out. And I guess the dad as well. But the dad was more possessed at that point. Like at the beginning off the bat, Jeff East, who plays the brother, who was also in Deadly Blessing. Um, he is really attracted to her from like the get go. And I'm like, wow, that's 
not cool, dude. <laughs> not you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He has a real tough time in love because if you remember Deadly Blessing gets killed in that car with the girl mm-hmm. trying to yeah. he touches her boob and then he dies and it's like really sad. Ah. Uh, that's the worst. <laughs> It is the worst. worst. I can't even imagine. um, um, So, yeah. So, uh, Dan, your thoughts on Summer Fear in Italian? What did you think of it? Uh, I I enjoyed it. I, um, uh, it was was tricky because I sort of watched it all the way through and then kind of watched again with a plot line nearby that I could read. So there, there were moments where I could connect and go, oh, okay, this is that and the other thing. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big Linda Blair fan. So I was like watching her and stuff. Um, and I do, like I said, I really liked Fran Drescher in this. I, I did not realize it was her because they had her dubbed in Italian. I thought it was an Italian gal. And it wasn't until I went back and read the cast list that I was like, wait a minute, that was Fran Drescher. Oh my gosh. It's it's pretty obvious it's Fran and American because her voice is very distinct. It doesn't. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It has not wavered. It's interesting too because I don't necessarily understand the age limb age because she's working like a graveyard shift as a nurse, right? But she's mm-hmm. Linda Blair's best friend and Linda Blair is in high school, correct? Yes. Yes, right? Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. So even if she's not a nurse, like she's a candy striper, she's working crazy hours. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Fran. Wow. Yes, yeah. that's Fran. There's this really great scene at the beginning where they all go shopping and, mm-hmm. you know, Lee Purcell comes out in her uh, little shorts and her vest and everything. And they're walking. And I don't know either one of you notices, but, you know, they used to make women wear nylons all the time. Oh, yes. And yeah. when they wore shorts and she's got a little run in her nylons. Uh, Lee or Fran? Oh, Fran. Oh, Fran. And you Just... know what? It's, ador- it's adorable. I would bet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's adorable. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed it in Italian. Sometimes when I watch a film <laughs> in in a in a language that I don't understand without subtitles, I get a little lost. But this generally, it I I was I was uh, I was sort of clued into it, and as it builds right. towards the ending, like I said, they have the they have their brawl, and then suddenly it's a car chase. So I was like, this is everything. This is everything it's I need. Everything, yeah. It, a, it does but, have a nice build up. It doesn't like let you yeah. down. Mm. And the, the the print I watched, however, did end like a minute or so before the ending, so uh, I I, did, I didn't see the actual ending. But um, well, she but shows I, up I, a house that looks like a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> well, I enjoyed I enjoyed what I saw. I think uh, thumbs up, thumbs up, Wes. Yay! I also want to add that. So you mentioned that it aired against Devil Dog. The other movie, well, didn't there was another movie? ABC on Halloween in 1978 aired an episode of Three's Company an episode of Taxi, and apparently an episode of Starsky and Hutch, although I didn't know it was on that late into the 70s, but that's what the newspaper said when I looked it up. So, ABC was not in the Halloween spirit. Oh, I was going to say, were any of those Halloween-themed? You know what? Starsky and Hutch might have been. I don't know that I've seen a a Halloween-themed Three's Company, and I don't remember Taxi well enough to... to You know, it seemed like Taxi might do a, a Halloween episode, but I don't know that it would be terribly uplifting or anything it wouldn't be <laughs> as wacky as like if three's company did one well speaking of louise lasser you remember she played alex rieger's ex-wife no do i don't that? remember that oh she no. was so depressing she was so depressing oh no yeah she was tough uh, uh, uh louise louise so maybe she showed up on halloween mm-hmm. um okay so that is summer fear unless you want to anybody want to add anything i don't think so no Good. okay so um, thumbs up all around. We're big fans of it. 
Uh, yeah. And now we're going to move on to um, Invitation to Hell, which we have a promo for, and which I love listening to, and I've probably played it like a thousand times already. I look forward to your becoming one of us. Susan Lucci has a proposition for Robert Europe and Joanna Cassidy. An invitation to hell Thursday. So that is was ABC. <laughs> I know that great. That was an ABC movie of the week. Oh it aired God. on May 24th. What was it a movie? I'm calling it movie of the week, but it's not a legitimate movie of the week. Um, its air date was May 24th, 1984. It was shot pretty much at Culver City Studios. They built all the sets. Um, I don't necessarily know about the um, exteriors when they're at the company, but um, most of it was shot indoors because I guess they had to destroy parts of the houses and they had to build um, that really great gym and oh, yeah. the and hell they had to build that as well um it also features michael berryman who was in the hills of eyes as a valet i'm not really sure i've seen him in it though i don't remember saying hey that's michael berryman but apparently he shows up um and uh it, it aired at 8 p.m on cbs and i'm sorry on abc and it ran against magnum and simon and simon on cbs and on NBC was Give Me a Break, Family Ties, Cheers, and something called The Duck Factory, which I don't remember at all. With Jim Carrey? I have Duck no fa- idea. Duck fa- I didn't oh. look it up, so. Okay. Hmm. Um, so do you want to take it away, Dan? Yes, Invitation to Hell. Uh, it's about, um, what, what was it? Matt, Matt Winslow uh, is, is, the, um, is the lead guy and played by Robert Urich. And he's um he uh he and his family, his wife, Patricia, and his two kids, Punky Brewster and the boy, whose name I don't remember. Um uh Steve, maybe? Um they <laughs> are um Matt is a is a is a big uh he's sort of like a, a, a Silicon Valley kind of like computer inventor uh kind of entrepreneurial guy, but who's very much sort of his own man. Yes. But finally um, and it seems like under much prodding from his wife, Patricia, he's taken a job at a big corporation um, in this uh, lovely small town. And um, uh, he knows a lot of the people there. It looks like it's going to be great. Um, and he, he, he does seem like an outsider, whereas his wife does not. Um, soon after they arrive, they learn about the local uh, country club run by... Uh, the great and mighty um, Susan Lucci, or well, I don't know if it's run by her. She's the artistic director or something like that. I'm pretty that. sure she runs everything in that town. And she's is Jessica Jones, correct? Is her name? And it, it's it's kind of it, it's a little weird because Matt is doing his thing. He's doing his job. The family, actually, not punky so much his his daughter but uh his his wife really wants to be part of this country club really wants to be part of it and everyone is insisting that hey you're you're not anybody in this town unless you're part of this country club and the kids are kind of shunned because they're not there and they meet some really nasty other kids in the town yes. who because they're not part of this and um there's i think there's a big is it a halloween party i forget or some sort of big par- costume party is coming up and they're not invited because they're not in the country club. Ugh. And and eventually there's some weird stuff that goes on at work too. There's some creepy stuff with like uh, his secretary sne- is like sneaks him in a file in a dark room for him to look at. And there's you – know, Matt, Matt just wants to do his job and his job is inventing an enormous astronaut <laughs> space suit. 
and that's what he's doing. And it's it's meant to. But they're going to they're going to Venus, I believe, and they're going to Venus, and they need the spacesuit to um, withstand very very high temperatures. And so not only does the spacesuit withstand very, very high temperatures, you can see how, if you've heard the title of this movie, how this might help out later on, um, it can also recognize uh, life forms through this kind of neat green grid where it says, yes. like, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, Robert Urich. He's a human. You're looking at a plant. That's a plant. You know, stuff uh, like that. I would argue that Robert Urich was superhuman, but go ahead. He might, he might, he might be. But – um. Uh, eventually, um, Matt breaks down and they all go to the club. Yes. And, um, I believe you might have a clip. I do. I do. Um, so Jessica Jones really wants them in this club. Yes. And, um, so she realizes that he's kind of not as materialistic as his wife. And so she offers this. I seem to have lost you, Matthew. I, I thought I heard someone crying for, uh, for help. It was probably someone crying out in ecstasy. Pleasure can make you feel that good, you know. Oh, no, no, it was more like... You don't care that much about money, I can tell. But you care about power. And you care about pleasure, don't you? Yes. I don't know. Matthew, I like you. And I will personally see to it that your membership here is as pleasurable as possible. Ooh la la. That's the Lucci. And there's <laughs> Matt is in this big room with this enormous, strange door in it. Yes. And he's, he's heard noises beyond it. And slightly earlier in the movie, we saw one of his his friends and his his friend's family being in white robes all being welcomed beyond this right. door there's a lot of smoke and it's all really weird and they go behind the door and uh the next time matt sees his friend his friend's been promoted he has a huge office and it's it's astounding the way everything goes um matt is still more interested in his giant spacesuit than he is <laughs> The, His the, giant the lure, the lure of <laughs> the lure of Susan Lucci. Now I don't. Hey, to each their own. But <laughs> his family is offered uh, membership in the club, and they accept. Although Punky doesn't want to accept, and they are welcomed beyond this door with all the smoke, and then things start to go a little weirder, and um. Again, I don't want to give everything everything away, but um, uh, it all it actually it all starts with the family dog, who suddenly begins to dislike the family apart from Matt. Spot the evil. Yes, exactly, and and um uh, and Matt discovers that his wife Patricia took the dog to the vet to try to have the the dog put down, and there's a wonderful scene where. He goes home to talk to his wife, and his wife is a little more seductive than she had been. She's no, a little yeah. sexier. She's a little crazier. Trisha, where's the dog? 
Albert. Albert's at the vet's. I talked to the vet, Patricia. He's my ex-secretary's husband, remember? He told me what you said. He told me what you did. All those lies. I try and give you everything you want, Matt. I try to be a perfect wife, a perfect mother, a perfect lover. Everything you want and need. Now, do I ask very much in return? All I do is ask you to spend more time with the children and me. I mean, choose us over a dog that may be rabid or even worse. I don't know. Just give us a little bit more of yourself. Just enough to keep us together. Join us, Matt. Join us before we become a family of strangers. That's kind of a tour de force, I have to say. Yeah, yeah you don't want to do it again. Yeah, and she has a large knife in her hand throughout the scene too so so yeah and and in the end to reference back to summer of fear you don't want another stranger in your house that's why she's talking to him like this she she wants them to all not be strangers oh oops we forgot to add that piece of trivia which which one (laughs) oh my god i'm so off my game tonight summer of fear was actually called stranger in our house when it originally came out yes i'm sorry i'm sorry and then they they what happened was they sold it to cbs and CBS changed the title, and then it also went across uh, to Europe, and it played theatrically. And I think Wikipedia actually has a film poster for it, which is really cool. Um, and what's really interesting, just to go back to Summer Fear real quick, I'm sorry, because I just remembered it. The producer was saying uh, what kind of what I had said last week, or not last week, but our last podcast, that a lot of these TV movies are meant to be just see them once, throw it away. And if you're lucky, they air a couple times, maybe your local station picks it up for syndication. And when they made summer fear, it actually had a pretty phenomenal sort of afterlife because it did, it got picked up by another major network. And then I think it aired a couple times there and then it went into syndication and I saw it on the local channel. So it actually had a really um, vibrant afterlife. And then on home video, like Nate said, it was on VHS and then on DVD. And that's a rarity for TV movies. So, but all of Wes Craven's movies, except for the last one we're going to talk about are all available on DVD. Mm -hmm. So they've all gotten probably because he's famous. um, Yeah. Pretty with the exception of Chiller, they've gotten pretty decent releases. But anyway, go back. Sorry. Oh, so, so, so what's, what happens at this point is it's, 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 things are getting weirder and weirder. He, he sees his, uh, Matt sees his daughter um, tearing up Teddy bears, dolls, super violent. And he like has to wrestle punky Bruce to the ground. And then George Gaines comes in and beats the crap out of him. No, no, that's, that's not what happens. Um, (laughs) But the, uh, but so so we get to the night of the big costume hoo-ha and, um, and so what better costume for him to wear, to sneak into the country club and to try to go through that door than the giant astronaut costume. Yeah, like that wouldn't and, stand out to anybody who works at that company. And it's and so he goes in there and he convinces them that he's someone else. I forget which other member of the firm he's supposed to be. And he goes through that door. And then things go from creepy and strange to like loony for the last like 20 minutes or so. Things just go loony. And... um. 
I uh, again, I don't know how much we want to ruin, but uh, invitation to hell. We're kind of he kind of goes. I'm gonna spoil it. He goes into hell, is what he does, <gasps> and it's and 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 um, that's where I'm stopping. That's where I stop. stop. Yes. So, so, um, but it's yeah. a, it's really a, really it's really it's really cool because they go for it. They don't like wuss out. They just go full out crazy in the last like 20 minutes or so. I kind of think the whole movie goes for it. I think it's really, really, um, it paced really well. It's super energetic, even though not necessarily a lot of stuff happens in the first part of it. It's got a, a real sense of movement to it. Um, it. I don't think it's ever boring. Um, I did want to mention that Kevin McCarthy is in it. Oh, yes. Um, yes. As I guess his boss, I think. And it's also got um, Frank from um, Murphy Brown, Joe mm. Rebelabudo, I think is how you say his name. Um, forgive me, Joe. And um, I think Bill Irwin is the name of the guy who plays the vet. And so it's got a lot. Oh, and what's his name's in it? Um, no, that's Chiller. Never mind. Sorry. Uh, so <laughs> I watched a lot of these movies every weekend. So, um, yeah, so I like it for a lot of reasons. And, you know, originally uh, this was the least of my uh, favorite Wes Craven movies. I always really liked it, but I didn't. it wasn't my favorite. But the more I watch it, the more I really get into it. Uh, I think because you said that it goes into there. It's so 80s. It's like super excessive. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about stuff. Yeah. We want stuff. We want stuff. And it's about like mm -hmm. selling your soul to get that stuff and just to look good. You know what I mean? It's all about how you look, how your house looks, if you have the right furniture, if you have the right video game. Yeah, that's, and that's that's a big part of it too is that um, there, there's a scene where the wife says, we should get new furniture. Our furniture isn't right. And, and Matt says, oh, it's okay. And then, like, the next-door neighbor kids come over and laugh at their furniture, like, almost on cue. Yeah, you know, it's so. like it, it's like it's just about, like, keeping up, you know, with the Joneses or whatever uh -huh. and, um, and, and what you do one, to, to do it. And there's one guy in town who just who just doesn't care to do that. And uh, so – And, and I, he's I hot. Did <laughs> and in that, in that clip – the the wife says something like you know you wanted me to be the perfect this the perfect that and da 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 and I'm sure he did but we don't ever actually really see him doing that in the movie do we I mean there's never I mean we see him very devoted to his work but he also loves his family but I don't see sort of the the things that she claims that he wanted for, he I don't always quite. I didn't see it from his side. No, so. I think that she's changing. And I think that was part of a persuasion tactic because he okay. was so devoted to her that he was, she was sort of emotionally blackmailing him. You know what I mean? I th yeah. I think, I think one of, one of the things I love about the movie when I was watching it and I, I, I won't give any more away, but part of the, the fun of the last 20 minutes or so is the sort of incongruity of the man in the space suit who's in all the places he's in. And uh, I, th I think that, well, it's one of those things, there's a movie called Top of the Heap from the mid-70s. Um, I suppose it would be sort of considered a black exploitation film. And there's a scene in that where the, the lead character, who was an astronaut, keeps dreaming of himself in his astronaut outfit, walking down like the streets of like Universal Studios with all kinds of garbage and strange stuff around him. And it's really a weird dreamy sequence. Uh-huh. And and there's also there's also an episode of Doctor Who from a few years ago where the doctor and his friends are hanging out in the middle of the Utah desert and all of a sudden an astronaut at sunset comes up out of the water. 
and um and, and things happens. get worse. But it's it's sort of just this it's this 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 weirdness of you expect to see a spacesuit in a spaceship right. or on another planet, not rising out of a lake or walking down a city street or running through a psychedelic suburban street. And there's, right. there's some there's something or that I like plummeting about. to the depths of hell. Plummeting to you know what? I'm convinced that the um that the set that he's on that huge hell set. I'm convinced they use that in the Abbott and Costello film where they meet Boris Karloff, the killer. Do you ever huh. see that one? No, I don't think I have. You should. There's a closing sequence where they go into a bottomless pit, and if if you try to find it online and watch like the last 20 minutes, and you'll see this set, and it looks almost exactly like the Invitation to Hell set. So and you're saying like, they've held onto those that set for like six decades? Well, not six, like four decades. Well, Robert Urich probably asked them to. Hey, he might have. Yeah, yeah. we hey, always do what he, that. We always do what the Urich wants. I mean, like <laughs> you do what Urich and Luch wants. Pretty want, much. Want, want, so, so, Nate. Uh-huh. Um, your thoughts? Um, Invitation to Hell is one of those films that I didn't see for a really long time. Um, and then I saw it on. I think it was VHS as well. I think it was Sony put it out. I believe. I'm not 100 percent on that, but. It's another one that's a lot of fun. Um, Susan Lucci, I mean, i got to bring up the hair again because her <laughs> hair is just amazing in this movie. Yes, it is. Um, I love the opening scene where she just, like, blows out the back windshield of the vehicle. Oh, yes. Oh, oh so yes. cool. And that guy, when his, like, eyeballs come out and there's smoke coming out of him. Oh, that's awesome. Fantastic. Um, fantastic cast. I love the cast in this film. And... I'm a big fan of Joanna Cassidy anyway. Um, anytime I hear her voice, I always want to say, I'm right on top of that, Rose. That's, <laughs> that's from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dad. Oh. <laughs> um, but, no, I love her. And, uh, of course, I mean, who doesn't like Robert Urich? Sure. Come on. I mean, he's he's awesome in this movie. I mean, but, I mean, no, it's it's just a, it's an all-around fun film. I can't really think of uh, anything bad to say about it. Yeah, it's an interesting movie because it's it's crazy, but it works, you know. And, you know, Wes Craven, he actually said when he made it, he's like, this was preposterous. It's a preposterous script. It's a ridiculous premise. It's whatever. But, like, they, I think the fact that they play it so straight-faced um, kind of makes it, like, fun, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's, I think maybe if it had been like, you know, Wes Craven would get into like some meta type films and he's really good at that. But I think if he had made this like ironic or whatever, it wouldn't have worked. It really kind of needs that wholehearted, um, yeah. genuine approach to it. And they all did a, a really good job. One of the things that I really like about this movie is the score, which is, uh, by somebody named Sylvester LeVay, who I think is most famous for creating the opening theme to Airwolf. And nice. I feel like he did the score to Mannequin as well. Um, he's he's actually really interesting. Also, another thing about this movie that I liked um, was that the cinematography was by Dean Cundy, who oh, did yeah, Howard, yeah. right? Yes. And um, and that's, so what's so interesting about this movie and why I think I keep going back to it is that I really like the way it looks. And I think he shot it just so beautifully. And um, there's like some really clever moments in the movie. Like there's a scene where they're first coming to the town and they're driving by what they call the company. I'm not even sure you ever know the name of the business he works for. It's always the company in quotes. And, and his daughter played by Celia Moonfry is looking into the windows and she can't see anybody. Mm. And she makes a point about how, 
you can't see into the building and it's sort of like leading into like you can't see into the souls or whatever i mean like there's just like these little bits of dialogue that i think are really clever mm-hmm. and um and you know and it just kind of all works it's just, this was also susan lucci's uh first primetime tv movie she had done a little primetime prior to this i think she was on a fantasy island which i don't remember seeing so i'm gonna have to search oh. that out and um uh, but this was her first uh uh, movie and as you know she would go on to make a thousand tv movies and her agent originally turned it down um what? they sent her the script and he was like or she i don't know who her agent was but it was like you know what susan does not have time she's a really busy daytime actress and we're just not gonna even look at this and then the agent at some point was sitting there sometime later and thought you know what maybe i ought to hand this over to her and see what she thinks of it and susan when she really liked it um she she ironically enough um said that she thought the movie was very realistic which i still have a problem every time i read that <laughs> sentence i don't understand that part i guess if you look at the themes of it it's realistic you know like if maybe if you analyze it it's got some realism mm-hmm. to it but come on susan come on <laughs> but um anyway so i don't know if anybody remembers and i'm throwing this out to everybody and i would love to hear from somebody if they remember this and i i used to have it on tape and i don't know if i still do but right after scream came out when Wes craven was like the super huge filmmaker good morning america invited him to host a halloween episode and he actually was like the host for all the like lifestyle segments and somebody in a scream mask kept falling around the studio and I guess they were killing the uh, anchor people or whatever. And at the very end, they unmask the screen person and it's Susan Lucci. (laughs) And he's all surprised because he's like, Oh my God, Susan. And she talks about how they worked on this movie together. And while that's amazing, the most amazing part is Susan Lucci looks like a 12 year old when she's in that costume. <laughs> she, I don't even think she's five feet tall. I don't know if anybody out there knows how tall Susan Lucci is, but um, it looks like a little kid chasing Wes, Wes Craven is over six feet tall, right? Mm-hmm. Through the um, halls of Good Morning America. And um, it was really cool. And they did a little promotion for this movie. And I can't find any clips of it on YouTube where I would have played some of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I know. I know uh, Susan Lucci on the Family Feuds. I've seen her on. She's very tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you sure that wasn't something you dreamed? Because I know you've uh, been sick. <laughs> you know what? It sounds like a beautiful dream, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound like a fantastic <laughs> dream. <laughs> but apparently, it actually happened, and I should probably research wow. that a little more because every time I look it up, I can't find it. Mm. Were you oh, going to say something, Nate? Oh, no, no. I was oh. actually very interested in the story because <laughs> I had no idea that this happened on Good Morning America. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wow. It makes you love Good Morning America, right? Yeah. Well, was I David Hartman still on there? Or? No, it was way after David Hartman. It would have been like 1996 or something, 97 okay. maybe. But what was it? I guess that makes sense because Susan Lucci was on All My Children at the time. And then the 90s soaps were still pretty much a huge part of our viewing habits mm-hmm. um still part of mine but i know that i'm in my <laughs> now but and so it kind of makes sense that they would sort of promote her while they're there you know while they've got west craven um hosting the show and I, you know i only really remember the unveiling and i feel like she was stabbing people throughout the <laughs> episode so if anybody has a copy of that or knows anything Please. about it i'm gonna give away all our contact information at the end and i forgot to do feedback at the beginning this is how well i'm doing over here we so can do we'll feedback at the end yeah right we'll do it at the end um so i i feel like that's all oh by the way also invitation to hell was nominated for outstanding art direction in a mm. limited series or special at the emmys that year wow 
Did, did so it win? We, no, I don't think so. Oh. It was only nominated, but it was an Emmy nominated film. Wrap your brain around 1984. It was cool. Wow. It That's was awesome. good times. Yeah. Mm. So, um, does anybody want to add anything to that? No, can't, can't think of anything. Okay. So I guess we'll move on to my favorite uh, West Coast. Oh boy. And um, that is Chiller, which originally aired on CBS as their Wednesday movie of the week on May 25th, 1985, which was so it was the year after um, Invitation to Hell. So he did these kind of back to back. Oh, by the way, when he was making Invitation to Hell, he was actually working on two other movies. I think he was working on pre-production for Nightmare on Elm Street. So he had yet to break out at, into the way he did when that movie came out. And I think he was also doing post-production on The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. While wow. he was doing Invitation to Hell. So he was really busy. Well, that's a um, trilogy of terror. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And then I guess he right after that, he jumped right into Chiller. Um, mm. And uh, I don't think I wrote down what they played with. Um, so I can't tell you what it ran against. But, I do um, notice that both Invitation to Hell and Chiller uh, aired right after my birthday. So oh, I don't know if that means anything. I, don't, I think I don't Wes Craven know. knew. Wow, he must have. Wow, that's weird. He must have known. Hmm. Um, what I will say real quickly about this is that uh, Chiller... So Wes Craven hasn't written any of these movies. Um, but uh, J.D. Feigelson wrote uh, Chiller. He also wrote Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And I, I have a feeling that's part of why I love it so much, because I'm such a huge fan of Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And I think it's got the same sort of thoughtfulness behind it. Um, and um, it kind of transcends to me in some ways. Uh, much like Dark Knight of Scarecrow did as a film, as a TV movie. Uh, so, but I'll let Dan uh, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, this this one is actually, uh, I think, a bit easier to um, uh, uh, break down than the, than the other ones. It's basically a um, man named Miles Crichton has, well, not quite. He's been cryogenically frozen, awaiting um, uh, the time when he can be unfrozen and, and cured of whatever it was he was dying of. He um, he and his, his family, uh, they own a huge corporation of some sort. And his mother, Marion, is very devoted to Miles. The movie begins with them curing Miles, bringing him back to life. Uh, for a time, it looks like he's not going to survive. Uh, one of Marion's best friends is a priest played by Paul Sorvino, who's a little worried about the whole, you know, soul and afterlife kind of ramifications of, of all this. Miles does come back to life, um, moves back into the, the family home with Marion and uh, Jill. How do you say her last name? I'm uh, sh- sh- I, I say Sh- Sholin, but I know Nate Sholin. did a popcorn episode and you guys talked a lot about how to say her last name. And is it like Shulin? Yeah, it's actually Shulin. Okay. I, I've never said her name out loud, but um, she's wonderful. And she Sh- plays... She plays some sort of family member. I never she's quite like figured adopted. out exactly. I feel <laughs> she's like adopted. she's adopted, okay. yeah. Um, and, and so ba- basically what we learn in pr- pretty quickly is that Miles returned from the other side, but part of him didn't come back. And he takes over the corporation and he begins sort of ruthlessly getting rid of people, firing them. Um, although... He sometimes does a little more than that, getting rid of people who are um, he doesn't believe fit. It's basically he's like the perfect like CEO because he kind of has no soul, and and you could tell because the dog hates him. There's another dog. Oh, that's right. 
that he used to love that so now good. barks and barks and barks at him. Yeah. Um, and the movie just just basically it's it's Miles running this corporation very ruthlessly, causing a, a death or two. Um, his mom refusing to believe anything's wrong. Uh, Paul Sorvino, Father Sorvino, um, sort of trying to questioning. Um, just like I said before, the, the ramifications of what, what has happened to this man who's been frozen, more or less dead for 10 years. And, um, Miles is, um, he's got an eye, he's got an eye on his eye on Jill. And, um, I did too throughout the movie, but he's got like creepy eyes now after he came back from, yes, from that's right. It's kind of glossy. Yeah, sort of weird. weird. It's like Stan Winston, I believe, did the the makeup or something. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. So it was, um, yeah. They're they're really. It's kind of it's 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 neat. It's neat makeup, and um, there's a there's a woman in the advertising department who um, stands up to him in a meeting, and then goes out with him for drinks, and then stands up to him again, um, but then she ends up going back to his hotel room. Yes, and I'm going to play that clip, but I just want to uh, preface it by saying that for whatever reason, Chiller has never gotten the correct release on VHS or DVD, and it's got really bad sound qualities. Um, So I pulled the two best clips that I could. There was another clip I wanted to pull, but it was just like, wah, 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 wah. You know what I mean? And so I was like, that's not going to work. So this doesn't sound great, so please bear with me. Um, The second clip sounds a lot better, but here you go. You even like What's that got to do with it? You win. That's what it's all about. Like you said, business is cold-blooded. This goes beyond business. This is pleasure. like that scene even listening to it now it yeah. gives me goosebumps um yeah, it, it's just it's just uh the acting is so good michael beck is like amazing mm-hmm. in the role of miles and there's a lot of this is not the only scene where they reference cold-blooded and cold-blooded it becomes a metaphor for everything he's a cold-blooded businessman he's a cold-blooded person he's literally cold-blooded from all those years being frozen and it, i think it's just so cleverly played throughout the dialogue but that scene in particular just the play between them and yeah. that that sort of sociopathic response he has to her, it just it gives me goosebumps. I love it. Yeah, it's um, uh, from this point more or less, it it becomes about uh, Father Sorvino. That's not his name. I forgot his character's name. <laughs> well, Tr- trying okay. to ha- having discussions with his sort of housekeeper. Um, whom I could have sworn was uh, in a wheelchair until she stood up and walked. I don't know why I kept thinking she was in a wheelchair. <laughs> I wish she's uh, into it. <laughs> um, she, uh, but they they discuss they discuss the soul, and then eventually the sort of big confrontation. There's a, a, a big confrontation between Miles and Father Sorvino, 
where they discuss um, the afterlife, and it's really. Mm-hmm. Okay. I beg your pardon. Who are you? I beg your pardon. I recognize the face, the voice, but you're not Miles Creighton. Of course I am. Ask Marion. Who should know a son better than his own mother? She's blinded by her love. You're meddling, preacher. What do you want? To know who you are. That's not what you want to know. You want to know what's on the other side. All right. Yes. If you are Miles Creighton, and you really have been called back, then yes, you've seen the other side. And you want to know what's there. I'll tell you what's on the other side. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You die and there's simply darkness. It can't be. No streets of gold. No harps, no halos, no angels and saints. It's all here. So you better live it up, holy man. Make the most of the here and now because that's all there is. You're lying. Why would I lie? Tell me, why would I lie? Now you know. So I also really like that exchange. Um, I think Live it's it up, holy man. Oh. Yeah, I think it's interesting to have that sort of um, uh, questioning priest character, which you see a lot in yes. a lot of, of both theatrical and TV. Uh, when I was listening to that clip again, I, I started to think about um, Haunts of the Very Rich. I don't know if either one of you have seen uh-huh. that. And um, Robert Reed plays a priest, and they it's a really bizarre movie. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. But it's um, all these people kind of end up on a plane. They've won a contest or something, and they end up at this really weird island. But what's really weird is nobody can remember how they got on the plane and why exactly they're there. And one of them just happens to be this priest. And all this weird stuff starts to happen at the resort they're staying at. And... Robert Reed starts to wonder if maybe they've died and they're in purgatory. Mm. And so he has a lot of questions about like what life means and where you go. And this film is kind of tackling the same issues. Yes. Um, a little differently, but I think that idea is there. And so I, I'm going to say, I'm not a very religious person at all, but I do think that um, there's a lot of wonder in the afterlife. And so I'm always really fascinated when um, films can sort of uh, discuss that kind of stuff in ways that uh, have you questioning, you know, everything, you know. So, and I think Troy does a really good job of that. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I think, uh, it, a, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the great stuff in the movie too is, is how much the mother, Marion, doesn't want to believe that her son, who has been gone from her for 10 years, can be anything but the, good boy that she remembers prior right. to his going that, away. Well, that's and, also really interesting because everything she does at the beginning, like who freezes their kid, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a total act of desperation on her part and she mm-hmm. just wants to keep the dream alive as long as she can. And then there's a point where she can't base that lie anymore. Mm-hmm. And Beatrice Strait, uh, I think she won an Emmy for, not an Emmy, an Oscar for Network, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, She is amazing in this movie. Mm -hmm. 
yeah the uh yeah the 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 closing when she sort of finally realizes what miles is she's uh she's she's a she's a powerhouse and <laughs> it's it's it's, she it's something it's something it really is wow and um just to go back to to Jill Shulin um oh yeah she has a she's not really in the movie she almost has like kind of a thankless role she's just mm. in the background really till the end and she's sort of pivotal but she's sort of like an interesting character too because um it's she sort of takes a back seat when Miles comes back, you know, and she had come into the family because Beecher Strait needed somebody there, and they, she obviously loved her daughter, her adopted daughter. But then Miles came back, and then it was almost sort of like she was just sort of the girl at the house. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and the uh, yeah, and that and there's that there's sort of a, a a final moment that sort of sparks. Sparks get it like hot sparks. Um, <laughs> um, Miles uh, is 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 the moment where where even I set up where it was um, where uh, uh, Jill Stacy she comes right. Yeah, I, I think um, her character comes home from doing something or other, and she's got this long coat on, and right. she goes up to the fire, and she kind of stretches out, and she takes the coat off, and she's in a bathing suit. No, it's a leotard. Said, it's a leotard. Is that a leotard? Okay, and yes. then and then you see Miles is right behind her. Oh my God! Yes, and he's just like, I'm it's like just, just just looking at her. It's like, hey, now Ooh, she's dinner. Is... Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Whew. I don't want to be there for that. That's one but, of my um, favorite scenes, actually. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's 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 um. I I guess like like with Invitation to Hell, it's it's another uh. Sort of, I well, I guess it's the corrupted individual coming back in, but this time it ends. Well, it's really interesting because the family unit here is different, and um, it's not like it was in his first two films. Mm. It's now, and it's more like I guess Nightmare on Elm Street. It's more like the family is sort of divided. So, like, we don't know where his dad is. I guess we're assuming he's dead, and some of the family is actually the business. You know, like um, is it Dick O'Neill? Who is the uh, guy that's running the company while Miles is gone? Oh yes, Claire, Clarence, or is that his name? I think I can't remember his name, but I feel like it's the actor's name is Dick O'Neill, and he um, he's he's the loving uncle. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's like a really good guy, and I think the business as a whole was sort of a family environment until yeah. Miles comes back, and um, then he's going to run it the way you run companies in the eighties, right? He's yeah. going to have that iron fist. And, and what I think is so interesting is if you watch the sort of um, transition of film to film, this is something I wanted to talk about, um, is that so you start with the traditional family unit, right? And then somebody comes in, but it's really sort of about this family living pretty upscale. And then it moves into how do you maintain that upscale lifestyle? Well, you sell your soul, right? And yeah. then it moves into, hey, we're all soulless, Mm. You know what I mean? It's got this really interesting. Like I feel like oh, the movies are connected in like a, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. In my is, mind, not yeah, in any well, real way, but when yeah, when I watch them in quick succession, like two weekends ago, there is a feeling that they're all sort of. You can tell that it's the same filmmaker who, even if he didn't write them, they're sort of the same issues that, yeah. that, that crop up as with any good sort of artist. Yes, which I really appreciate, um, Nate. Um. Yes. So. I, I did like Chiller, but I'm going to say something that's don't going to break, be shocking. Don't break my heart. 
as as actually as shocking as it was when we talked about isn't it shocking? Uh-oh. Um, uh, it's my least favorite Wes Craven movie, but it's still above average, so. Okay, Nate, I'm doing this again with all the love in my heart. <laughs> no, that's okay, that's okay. I got the feeling that Dan wasn't a bi- as big of a fan as this movie either. I, ap- um, I, appreci- I appreciated what it was doing more than I actually enjoyed it. I, I, th- I think I could I could um, actually I think I agree with that. Um, I will say, you know, uh, I did like the performances. I loved, loved Beatrice, yeah. Beatrice Strait in yes. this movie. Yeah. I mean, I've seen her because, you know, in the network, she won an Oscar for a performance that's like uh, maybe just a little over five minutes. Yes. long. That's all the screen mm-hmm. time she has in that whole. She's good enough that she earned that Oscar. Um, so, I mean, just watching her in this film and, you know, I mean, just watching her throughout the whole film, uh, was quite a treat, I thought, because, uh, you know, it was just... Well, she's really commanding. Yo, yes, yes, like, um, I imagine, like, as a young actor, I'd probably be intimidated in the scene with her. Um, and it's always fun to see Jill Shulin, um, you know, because I, I actually... Chiller, this is one of the first time. This is the first time I saw the movie. Um, I had never seen it before until oh. you, you you had brought it up for the show. Um, so I didn't even realize, you know, that um, Jill Shulin had even done this like other horror film because I'd, I'd seen her other work, you know, theatrical stuff. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the movie itself, you know, I really liked, it, and and I, I can't really say too many bad things in any movie that has the big climax in a meat freezer. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Because I quite enjoyed that. And they, they really milked it because, like, he's, like, hiding in a meat freezer. How big is that freaking freezer at your house, lady? Because the cops yeah. come in, and they can't find him. And it's, yeah. like, really? It's catacomb, yeah. Yes. Uh, that's a huge freaking meat freezer. <laughs> Definitely. But, I mean, I, I still I still give this one thumbs up as well. It's just It just wasn't my favorite amongst the three that I, I got to see. Yeah, well, whatever. If you don't get asked back, you know what happens. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a heartbreaker. You know what? I think I have a feeling I might be in the minority of it. I wanted to just point out a couple things, though, that since I did actually write down. It did play against another TV movie called Right to Kill, um, which was based on a true story. I don't remember the story now, but you could look it up. I feel like Frederick <laughs> Forrest is in it. I'm sorry. I just, I'm really in a haze. Um, and, uh, I believe of the two movies, uh, the critic that I read reviewed both of them, and I think he actually liked Chiller more. And I think it's because the true story is about a kid who gets abused and then he ends up killing people. And I, I have a feeling it's just a really dark movie and in the way that Chiller is not dark because it's more fantastical. And I think it just suited the tastes of the critic. Um, but Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say Right to Kill? With yeah. a question mark. I've got it here. ABC, okay. Frederick Forrest, Justine Bateman, Ooh. Uh, Terrence O'Quinn, who might be Terry O'Quinn. I don't know. I haven't oh, seen him. Oh, maybe. J.T. Walsh. The subject of domestic violence was addressed here in the fact-based story of a father shot to death by his teenage son, fed up with the physical and emotional abuse he, his sister, and their mother had been taking for years from their soulless father. I made that last I've part up. I've seen that. But have you? <laughs> oh, have you seen that? Did you like it? Yes, I did. I really did like it. Uh, I think the son is actually played by 
the guy that played uh, Paul in Sleepaway Camp. Really? He didn't do many movies, but he did this one. He was the abused son, and the dad was like a – he was a military dad. Yes. And I know there was like one scene where he took the daughter, and because she had acne, he was like scrubbing her face with like <gasps> a Brillo pad. Oh. I mean, so, he was a tyrant. So do you remember, was that actually Terry O'Quinn? Not that's not bad, remember. but because here's the thing: they were both in the stepfather, him and Joe Shulin, and then they were in rival TV movies. That would be oh, really boy. cool. That'd be a piece of trivia you could tell at parties. Do you think they I sent mean, each other fun, well nasty letters? Or? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it could have been him, but it's been so long since I saw that movie. The main thing I remember is that the guy in it was in Sleepaway Camp, mainly because I'd never seen him in anything else. <laughs> I don't think I've seen anybody from Sleepaway Camp in any, except for Felissa Rose. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. no, no, no. I've, I've seen Mike I've seen the, and stuff. I've seen, yeah, the, I've seen the camp, the head of the camp, that guy. Yeah, I, yeah he was I've in a lot seen, of yeah. stuff. He was a famous character mm-hmm. actor. Um, so, also, the, there's a scene towards the beginning where they bring Miles out of his cryogenic state, and they're not real sure if he's going to pull through, and there's a nurse. It's a really long scene, maybe oh, too yes. long. Um, there's a reason for that. So, you know, where he opens his eyes, and she's like, and they're all glassy, and he's, she's really terrified of him. That nurse is played by Wes Craven's second wife, um, Mimi Craven, who, according to a podcast that Hysteria Continues did, uh, not according to them, but according to Eric on the podcast, Mimi Craven had an affair with Sharon Stone when the, when Wes Craven was making Deadly Blessing. What? And that led to their divorce. Now, I can't find any proof of that, but Wes Craven did say that his second wife and his marriage to her was a complete sham. Wow. That's a quote. I remember Eric bringing that up, but I mean, it's, it was news to me then too. Yeah, I know. I never heard it, but I like telling people anyway. I have no idea if it's true. <laughs> um, but Mimi Craven made me so mad in that movie, Mikey. Oh my God, that's her. <laughs> yep, that's her. Ah, uh, I love Mikey. I love Mikey, but it just it cracks me up that you have a full grown woman and you have a little nine year old that's got a little hammer, and she <laughs> cannot fend him off at all. I'm like, I think you could just barely push him down and you'd be fine. But she just stands there like, oh, please don't hit me with that hammer. Well, the whole family's like that, though. Yes, you know? all and the adults. I know. I love the part where he goes, you've taught me a lot of things, teacher. Now teach me something else. How to die. And he's got that slingshot and he just nice. sits it at her. Yeah, it's an incredible movie. I'm a, Speaking of family ties, Justine Bateman and Right to Kill. Brian Bonsall played Mikey. And I know he's gone on to have a very he struggles as an adult with a lot of issues, but he was literally the cutest kid I've ever seen. That's what made him convincing as Mikey. Cause everybody he, thought he was too cute. He was so adorable. And to yes. have him play that character was, was really great. And he was good at it. I like Josie Bissett. I think her yeah, name she's is, great. In that. She, she was in Melrose play, yes. which I love. So <laughs> she went on and took on Mikey's haircut on Melrose place. If you'll know, she did. <laughs> She did. She had great hair in Maki, and then yes. she went and hacked it all off. Oh, I hate that haircut. That single white female bowl cut, Peter Tork. Man, yeah, Peter Tork, that I've actually did her recently. Yeah, I really hate that haircut. <laughs> I know that's getting off topic, but um, I just had to be said. 
Okay, so Michael Beck had never done a horror movie when he made this, and in some interviews he did to promote the movie, he actually had apparently long conversations with Wes Craven about the film, and um, he was really interested in something that took on a more Hitchcockian tone. He wasn't, at the time, slashers were really on their way out, it was 85, but he that's what he was relating horror to, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with slashers, but that was not what Michael Beck was interested in making, and so um, I think he liked the approach Wes Craven took, which I obviously really like as well. Uh, apparently, not everybody loves that approach. But um, I think that it does have a Hitchcockian quality. Of the three films, it's probably the most methodical. Um, and for me, it's the most thoughtful of the three. And th these are normally, I mean, I call these the Craven Three because he had made a fourth film, but it was kind of lost for many years. Like, uh, I knew very little about it. And um I had never seen it, but this past weekend, I, I actually had a chance to sit down with it. Well, are we done talking about Chiller, or? I am. <laughs> You're I, done. I, you know what I mean? You are done. I'm just telling you right now. I'm going to tell you how I feel about Texas Chainsaw Massacre right now. I love oh, no. that movie. I love that movie. Okay. Okay. That's all. All right, Dan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I'm good. I think I'm good with Chiller. I think I'm good. Okay. All right, so let's move on to Night Visions, which I know Nate hasn't had a chance to see, but um, I'm hoping... Oh, one more thing about Chiller. Um, I read this somewhere. I don't know if I agree with it, but a critic thought that the opening credit where they where the word Chiller comes up on the screen was meant to evoke Freddy's glove, like it's cutting into the screen. Huh. huh. I'm just putting that out there possibly, for everybody. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, I don't know, but as some uh, a critic related the two together, so I thought it was worth mentioning. But then some time passed, and Wes Craven was doing his films, and um, he really got interested in television. So he uh, he created that series I told you about with Jeffrey Jones, or he was the executive producer on it. I don't know if he created it. And he did Nightmare Cafe, which was a TV series I'm not that familiar with, and he did some Twilight Zones. And he also, with his Nightmare Cafe producing partner, uh, came up with was this uh, some movie called from uh, called Night Visions um, that aired on NBC on November thirtieth, nineteen ninety. It's wacky. It's wacky, it and I think the best way to, for me to introduce this movie before we get into the crazy lunacy of it is to just play. I made a montage of some of my favorite bits of dialogue, and um, if you haven't seen Night Visions. Hopefully this will tempt you into seeking it out. You're tap dancing right on the edge these days, Mackie, and I don't think you're in control of it. I'm in control. I like being on the edge. The view's better. Guess what I tried. And I'm like, whoa, like, what a pinhead, okay? Like, I'm not even curious, okay? Where the hell is Cassie? So listen, listen, listen. So I go to him, what, uh, a green Volvo? And he's like, no, a vanilla Porsche. Ah! So what am I supposed to, like, go outside now and lick it? Ah, gotta tell you, that kiss you gave me on Falcon Crest was probably the best kiss in my entire life. Hacky, off your butt. She's on the move. What? I, I think she went to the slammer. She went where? And she's on Big Bertha. On Rogers Harley. Looking wicked. Okay, so those are just some bits of dialogue um, from the movie that I think are amazing. That's all I, I, I was glad I got to see it because I, I really enjoyed it. It's um, Yeah, it's good. It's 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 uh, I mean it's clearly I mean am I am I right in thinking that it was a probably a potential pilot film yeah for a, I think for so. a series I, I think so because it because the way the way it ends with the with uh, 
when when the uh, two cops are leaving after solving the crime and Mitch Pileggi as the commander says to them, okay, you two, you're going to work on cases that I tell you you can work on from now on. And the two of them go strolling out almost arm in arm and it ends. And it's like, hey, so I would have watched this series. This or maybe you should have told him what, this, what the movie was about before you told him the end. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I will do that now. Okay. It's, okay. it's, um, it's, um, it's a, there's a, a killer, it's in Los Angeles. There's a killer called the spread Eagle killer who is basically <laughs> leaving all these dead females spread Eagle. And, um, uh, there is a cop, a tough cop who doesn't play by the rules called Mackie. He drinks a lot. Um, and then Mackie is introduced to, is her name Sally? Did I, I believe her name is Sally, yes, yes. who is, um, uh, kind of a first introduced to us sort of as, as a sort of, uh, ki- kind of almost like, um, uh, like Julia in, uh, in Summer of Fear. She's kind of a little frumpy. She doesn't have an Ozark, uh, accent. But she's kind of a little frumpy. Uh, <laughs> she's kind of a little meek and everything like that. And it turns out that, that, um, Julia, uh, Julia, sorry. It turns out that Sally is, um, uh, it, it seems like due to the fact that when she was young, someone came into her house and killed her family, but she got away. She has these psychic powers, but they're slightly strange psychic powers. They're where she slightly can, strange. Yeah. She can, she can, that, well, here's what it is, is she, she acts a bit weird here and there as they're investigating. And then they're called into a, uh, her, uh, Sally and Mackie are called into a meeting with Mitch Pileggi as their boss um, to talk about the spread Eagle killer. But all of a sudden Sally winds up at an, uh, a gym teaching an aerobics class and doing it very well. And it's kind of confusing. And, and you, you learn and someone gets killed at the, and in the gym and you learn that basically more or less she is kind of able to like, um, she gets sort of, I don't quite know how to describe it, possessed by people and she takes on personalities. Yeah. It's like she mimics them and she goes to places because she somehow connect i guess it's a kind of she makes connections to people right yes. and so she and when they go to the first not the first murder but the first murder that she goes to the scene of she lays yeah. down in like the chalk print yes. and she starts to take on the feelings of the killer so like she knows where he's going but she doesn't mm-hmm. know why she knows or who it is she and she just, doesn't Go ahead. She do, she doesn't always re- remember what's happening. So yes. it's sort of like in in one in one scene she suddenly winds up on a motorcycle. Luckily, the apartment she's staying in has a motorcycle in the living room. Yes, so that she, worked out well for her. A, um, She takes a motorcycle to this biker bar and she's dressed like a biker chick and she's like she's in there sort of. It's it's it's. I thought it was it's it's pretty interesting because she's sort of like wandering around inhabiting the personality of someone who would be at this bar, but she's also like looking around trying to figure out in a daze why she's there and trying to stop a killing. Right. And at the, at the same time that it's happening, Mackie, who, who is much more of a regular sort of cop is trying to catch up with her and figure out what she's about. And the whole time they're trying to stop this killer. Well, essentially every time somebody gets involved, somebody dies like she's like on the trail and then she gets stopped or something happens and then that person and the, there's a victim like two seconds later she so the cops a little, 
yeah, closer each time. But yeah, the cops are really like messing things up for her. And mm-hmm. like in the aerobic scene, she keeps checking out this dark haired girl, but it's like she keeps looking at her crotch. Like there's all That's, these close ups of her crotch. That, in the that, that, that does make sense in the end, but while well, it's happening, yeah. it yeah, it's um it because when the the gal in the um the biker bar who she's following, she keeps staring at her bare midriff. That's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. And and so it's so it's sort of like this. And um and and it's it's actually I was surprised that when I ca- caught the groove of it, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I, I had a real good time watching. And this is the one of the four that he he co-wrote this one. This Wes. is the only one he co-wrote. Yeah, yeah. He had anything to do with creatively and that I, way. And I and I will say one of the things I really liked, and I won't I won't say what the ending is, but I I will say one of the things I liked is that Mackie is presented as kind of douchey throughout yes. and it's sally is presented as kind of s- strange well they that sounds like the perfect team actually but um the great thing that they do at the end is sally when sally finally figures out where the killer is who the killer is she does it through her power but at the exact same time mackie sees a clue that no one else saw and realizes who the killer is so they yes. both they both get on the trail of the killer through their own techniques Correct. at the same time, which I appreciated because I thought Mackie was just going to like show up at the last moment and start shooting or something like that. But he actually detectives it, which I, which I like. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I quite enjoy. And the, the ending has some hanging off of a rooftop action in it. Oh, that scene was pretty, incredible. There's, there's I'm... one shot in particular. Yeah, how well, did they even get that shot? I don't even know. I, I there's a, there's a, it's astounding. Three people yeah, on the edge of a roof, and the and, and the camera just kind of goes. It's 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 something. It's, yeah, it's really, that was really amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, it's crazy. It's really fun. Um, it's ridiculous in a way yes. that kind of you're laughing while you watch it, but it's mm-hmm. got a lot of heart and it's completely enjoyable. Um, Wes Craven, you brought a lot of people in that he'd already worked with. So you mentioned Mitch Pileggi had been in Shocker mm-hmm. and, um, uh, her, the girl that lived above Sally was played by oh, Penny the- Johnson, who was in the Hills Have Eyes part two. And there's also a really hilarious, uh, wedding scene where, oh, yes. uh, Sally goes to a celebrity wedding, which is where that Falcon Crest clip came from. And she pretends like she's a rich actress, I guess. And she sort of insinuates herself into the party. And the the couple is being married by Timothy Leary. Oh, and yeah. what movie was he in again? He was in a Wes Craven movie. And I forgot to write down which one it was because I don't remember him. And uh, I don't remember. I can't remember what it was now. But he's in another Wes Craven movie. And so, um, so Wes was bringing in some people he really liked working with. Uh, Mitch Pileggi is very much like Skinner in a lot of ways in this. Uh, more rigid, though, for sure, even though I thought yeah, Skinner was yeah. pretty rigid. But um, it's just got a lot of energy. It's very 1990. Uh, speaking, yes. of bowl, speaking of bowl cut, Sally's bowl cut is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she wears some really hideous clothes at the beginning until she starts to kind of get into becoming more comfortable with yes. being Sally, I guess. And also the clothes she wears when she, at, at the Slammer. Are really amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a really yeah. amazing Stop outfit. It. Yeah, um, she's yeah. actually quite beautiful. But like they they really plain her up at the beginning. I actually think she does plain better than Lee Purcell did. Um, mm-hmm. And um, 
James Remar plays Mackie, and he's a great actor. I mean, he's just amazing. Um, he's really fun in this. You don't really learn as much about Mackie as you do about her. And there's actually yeah, so okay. really interesting. So I know Nate hasn't seen it, so it's unfortunate. But I'm pretty sure that they recreated um, the murder scene from House on Sword, not House on Sword Row. Um, oh my God, why can't it? Sorority House Massacre. So you okay. know, Sorority House Massacre. The, I don't know how well either one of you remember the movie, but you know the girl is having those dreams and they're connected mm-hmm. to her brother killing people. Yeah, yeah. And she goes and she hides in this little area. Yeah. And that happens in this movie too. And it feels very similar to that scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, that's all. Yeah. 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 I, I, night vision is uh, – or visions? Visions? Night, it's visions, um, yes. Visions. Uh, yeah, I was – I had no idea because it, it starts off with everyone doing some – Kind of really hot, I think salsa dancing, yes, or, or some some variety of it. And I thought, okay, this. And I actually said out loud when my wife was nearby. I said, I didn't know Wes Craven did a Lombada film, but <laughs> but then but then it kind of goes on from there. So it was, um, it's yeah, something. it was, yeah, it's definitely something. Yeah, and I w- I would have watched the series. I, I yeah, I would have too. So I, it, you, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say you would have learned more about Mackie and you would have learned about, more about the way Sally's powers worked and, and stuff like that. I, yeah, I think Mackie would have been intriguing. Um, it's probably because I don't know if it knew whether it wanted to be funny or serious. And that was kind of the mm. problem with it because it's got like the he's killing these women and he's spreading their legs. And already that's kind of distasteful, right? And mm-hmm. it's a procedural. But then he's got that celebrity wedding scene where he's got a Michael Jackson impersonator, a Madonna yeah, impersonator. Madonna yeah. That was a horrible impersonator. He's got <laughs> like um, Timothy Leary. And it's just, it does it's crazy. And it seems like mm-hmm. it's meant to be really tongue-in-cheek. But then mm-hmm. the rest of the film does not feel tongue-in-cheek at all. Mm-hmm. I do want to mention though, there's this also really great scene where she's on a date with the crime photographer that works at the police station and they're just talking and she sort of feels really comfortable with him and he wants to show her this other side of himself. So he takes her to where his paintings are hanging and you think it's a gallery, right? You walk uh-huh. in and there's these, or they're photographs, I'm not real sure. And she's like, God, these are amazing. And he's like, they're mine. And he's like, let's get ice cream. And he goes to the little ice cream counter right behind the painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, his paintings are in the ice cream. Farley, he's made it, guys. Just, just hang in there. So it's that really awesome. hard to tell what the the tone tone was of this movie. It's really hard to like yes. pin down yes. what they were shooting for, but it is really fun, and um, I highly recommend it. I just wanted to say that it actually ran against um, on CBS uh, something called Over My Dead Body, which was a TV series I have never heard of with the guy who played the Equalizer. Oh wow! And apparently, it, it's a similar sort of mystery show. Mm-hmm. And also, Dallas played that night. I'm sure Dallas was oh. the reigning champion. Yes. And um, and then on ABC was just a regular lineup, which was Perfect Strangers, something called Going Places, which I'm also not familiar with, and 2020. Okay. And also, Night Visions. Uh, there wasn't a lot of information about the movie online, but uh, for some newspaper, one of their critics actually promoted it with two other thrillers that were coming out around the same time. Um, and they're, only, they're worth mentioning because one is had Faye Dunaway in it, and she's amazing. It was called Silhouette. I never heard of it. Another one was called The Stranger Within, not to be confused with The Barbara Eaton Stranger Within, which I've also seen with Rick Schroeder and Kate Jackson and Chris Sarandon. And it's about a woman whose kid disappears, and then all these years later, he shows up at her doorstep, and it's Ricky Schroeder, but he's like this murderous kid. 
or I guess young adult now. And I only bring it up really because it was directed by Tom Holland, who did Child's oh, Play. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so we're seeing a lot of horror directors making TV movies, and I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, Nate, have we wet your whistle? Oh, I'll definitely seek it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna it's hold something. you to that. It's something, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty much something. I don't know how else to put mm-hmm. it. It's a really strange movie, but it, it is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there anything else you want to say about it, Dan? No, no, that was it. I uh, yeah, it's just, it's a uh, it's wonderfully weird, and I, I enjoyed it. I think we can say that that's a really good phrase, wonderfully weird. I think that's something mm-hmm. we can say about Wes Craven's films as a whole. Yes, yeah. Um, he had a very varied career. Uh, even just the four films we talked about are wildly different in a lot of ways, and in some ways they're really the same. And um, but he had like these movies that changed the way we looked at horror. And then he had these movies that made us wonder why he was making horror movies. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, they're so crazy. They're wonderful. Like I love deadly friend. That's a kind of a crazy movie. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, he followed his heart and I think that's what stands out about his ouvoir. And I think that's what we'll remember about him. I think some people, you know, the casual fans will always remember Scream and Nightmare on Street and Hills of Eyes. But I think that, like, his hardcore diehard fans will remember all of his output. And um, it's definitely worth remembering. And um, I hope that if you haven't seen any of his TV movies that you seek them out. Most of them are available somewhere. And they're all worth checking out. And I think we all have different favorites here. I'm a chiller girl. I think Dan is Mr. Invitation to Hell. And Nate is all about Summer Fear. So um, you're getting recommendations from all of us. I'm pretty close to night visions now after after seeing it, though. I really, really, there was something (laughs) in that. It's fun. There was something in that, Um, And so I just wanted to go ahead and get to some of the feedback that we've gotten. So we did our first episode a couple weeks ago. It's not on iTunes yet. Um, I'm sorry about that. I'm having some problems with um, the setup I have. I found a workaround, but um, if you haven't listened to the last podcast, uh, I go to school and I work. And um, so a lot of my time is not free, and I don't get to work on this as much as I want to. And as you can see by some of the hiccups I had tonight, I, I would have liked to research this a little more, but time is not always my best friend. But the first episode, just to recap, we all picked our three favorite TV movies, and um, I uploaded it to the website, and I'll give you links to all of everything in a minute. And um, we did get some people listening. And interestingly enough, I think with the exception of one person that left feedback, I don't know any of these people. So I'm really oh. pleased to see that. Uh, I don't know who you are out there, but thank you for listening. Um, a lot of really interesting people uh, contacted me. So I just want to go down the list. Um so there's different ways to get in touch with us. At the time, I didn't have a Facebook or Twitter. Now we do, and I'll give that to you at the end of the show. But I have a Facebook page for my blog. And um, and so I got a lot of feedback off that page. And so Eric uh, left me a comment, and he said, podcast sounded great. It's a solid first outing. Looking forward to what you all do next. Um, and so I hope he really likes this West Craven podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. That's- Yes, thank you. That's what we did next. Um, someone named Florence came on. I actually had a conversation with Florence, so I'll just read to you her parts. Uh, great podcast. My all-time favorite. The, oh, she's talking about her favorite movies here. My all-time favorites. The Calendar Girl Murders with an early Sharon Stone and Lady Killers, one of my favorites too, Florence, by the way, with late career appearances by Susan Blakely and Leslie Ann Down. I guess I like the trashier films of the 80s. 
And um, then she wrote in another post, quick question, prior to ABC going to the horror genre in the early 70s, didn't they stick to a lot of down-home, southern, country-themed, low-budget type films during the mid to late 60s? ABC families to run ancient-looking movies, and I was told those were former ABC movies of the week, and I wanted to see if that was true and might possibly be a topic for an upcoming podcast. So I I wasn't sure. Um, and I haven't actually had a chance to look into that. So I responded. I told her I wasn't sure. And she said, wow, sorry, it was a few years ago. And I was reminded of this after your podcast discussion of the ABC movie, The Weeks in the 60s. Also, there may have just been a few of these, so they might be extremely obscure, as it was only weekend afternoon fodder, basic cable back in the 2000s. Still, I enjoy the blog and podcast. So thank you, Florence. Um, and I'm glad I read this feedback because it's reminding me I need to look that up for you. And it might be interesting if they did some of those, because I know like in the late 60s, there was the rural purge where they got oh, rid yeah, of a lot yeah. of the Westerns and like shows about Southern people like Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction. Yeah, Green um, Acres. Yeah, all those shows, even though some of them were doing well, they got canceled. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was like some down home in quotes um, type films that were being made to sort of cash in on the popularity of those shows. Uh, so that would be worth researching. Um, Brian said i just found this podcast through the hysteria continues so thank you nate, hey. uh, that. Hey, nate have you ever covered starflight uh the plane that couldn't land which i have so i sent him a link to that <laughs> and then he responded and he said if you're looking for ideas for future podcasts it might be interesting to compare the american and british tv movies about world war three made in the early 80s the films being the day after for america and threads for the uk um, huh. I would like to do that. I have actually never seen Threads, and I've purposely not seen it because I think it's going to really mess me up. Because the day after was really traumatic, and I heard Threads is actually a lot more realistic. Mm -hmm. um, have either one of you seen it? You know, I feel like I've saw I've seen Threads a long time ago, but I'd have to actually sit down and and look at it again. I I I could be thinking of the day after. Actually, now that I'm saying that out <laughs> <Well>. loud. <laughs> Yeah, okay. uh, I, I will say no then. No, I haven't. Okay, <laughs> okay. Nate? I've definitely seen The Day After, but I haven't seen Threads. Okay, so that might be something interesting for us to check out. The Day After was really intense. I didn't really watch it the night it aired. I was one of the few Americans who didn't sit down yeah. and, and watch it because I, I just knew it was going to be like the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen. And I so I would turn it on and then I would move over to whatever the other movie was or whatever the other channel was showing and the next day I went to school and my friend had seen it and she basically gave me the breakdown mm. and I was horrified just hearing the breakdown of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause, cause when you were living in the middle of the cold war, I mean, I think it's so interesting to talk to people who didn't grow up during the cold war. And I think, I guess when you're young in general, and I know I did it, I'm not trying to like, put down millennials or anything. But I think that when you're a certain age, sometimes it's easy to look back on the past and discount it because you weren't there mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily understand the cultural climate of it. And I'm not saying that like I had slept under my bed and I was terrified and I had like a bomb shelter in my house. But I mean, it was really, it was, you were really affected by living in this constant threat of like the whole world could go by the push of a button. And it's not like it was on your mind all day. Like you went and lived your life and everything was fine. But there was always like, if somebody talked about it, there was a real palpable feeling of it. And, um, I, for, for, as a teenager, that was just a really difficult thing for me to think about. And so I did avoid a lot of that cold war sort of stuff. I missed a lot of the programming that they had back then. Unfortunately, um, I'm only just now kind of catching up with it. 
Yeah, I, I, I just remember, um, I, I, I remember. I think I mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned in the last podcast. I remember watching America, and of course watching Red yes. Dawn over and yes. over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, that was the, upsetting uh, too. Yeah, in, in its way, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah maybe I, not now, looking back, but at the time, I mean, like I remember there was a scene, and I can't remember. I see Thomas Allen Red Dawn. Yeah, I feel, I so. I feel like there's yeah. a scene where he has to shoot somebody. And that somebody's really close, so he looks into his eyes before he kills them. Mm. And that was really effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen that in ages. I think the uh, the the film like that 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 affected me the most was actually a much older film, a uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman film called Shame from the late '60s, uh, yes. where a where a country is o- uh, overrun by another country, and it's it's following these people as they're forced out of their home and become more and more desperate. And it was uh, that I. I for some reason, that that's been one that stuck with me. Of course, that's a complete tangent. So uh, hey, where, where really am I bad. now? But uh, this, these are all pick me up films we're talking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, not a, <laughs> not a, not a happy go lucky. But at some oh, point, I miss, I miss night okay. visions. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. I want to go back to that. But I mean, at some point, it might be interesting. I definitely yeah. it's hard to talk about TV movies uh, mm-hmm. that are from that era and not talk about like nuclear war, the cold war. And actually, if we want to make it fun, um, we could watch a really serious movie about the cold war. And then we could watch something like secret weapons, which is stars, um, Linda Hamilton and Gina Davis as young Russian girls who get picked up by the government to seduce American men and then like plant, plant drugs on them and stuff as like propaganda to show, like, look what the Americans are doing in Russia. It's a really good movie. It's really, it's hilarious. There's this really great scene. Sally Kellerman plays the teacher of the school that they're at where they learn to speak English. And, um, and she she shows them a commercial, like a a montage of commercials of women putting on lipstick seductively. And then Mm -hmm. she's like, okay, now take off your clothes. And she makes all the girls in the classroom take off their clothes. It's like, it's really weird scene. It's a really amazing movie. Um, so we, if we wanted to do one serious movie, it might be better to balance it with something like that. Some, yeah. um, just a thought. So, uh, also Nick, uh, who I actually know, um, he, I met him here in Austin. I think he's now living in Portland. He's, he left a comment. He said, I finally listened to the first episode all the way through. Well done. So thank you, Nick, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. And on Twitter, um, a lovely girl named Elizabeth, who I talk to sometimes on Twitter, listen to the podcast, and this is what she said. I really love the podcast. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you guys do the Wes Craven podcast because I'm such a fan of his body of work. Everyone talks about Chiller, but I actually enjoyed Stranger in Our House more. I think I'm I I think my favorite part was you all talking about Death of a Cheerleader. My friends and I still <laughs> quote that a lot. And a one life to live shout out, great job. Yay. Yay. So we hit all the That's bases awesome. with her. Uh, yeah, which I'm really excellent. happy about. Uh, also, Lizzie is on Twitter. Um, I would like it if you followed her because she's really interesting. And you can find her at Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z-Y, Irwin, E-R-W-I-N. She also has a website that she started with a couple of the girls called The Horror Homeroom, which they've just started. But the content's really amazing. Some of it's analysis of horror. Some of it's reviews. I think they have some news in there. Um, the writing's really good. You can follow them on Twitter at Horror Homeroom. Or you can visit their website at www.horror. Oh, sorry, I can't even say these words together. Horrorhomeroom.com, um, and she's really cool. So check her out. Uh, so we also have a website, and um, someone named Gary left a comment. 
uh, on the website, which is really nice. And he said, enjoyed the podcast and looking forward to more of them. I'd like to suggest two TV movies for future discussions. One is Tribes, 1970, starring Darren McGavin as a Marine DI and I'm not sure what DI stands for. And Jan Michael Vincent as a hippie draftee. I saw it when it first aired and catching it again recently was happy to see it still holds up admirably. The other is The Norless Tapes, 1973, directed oh, by sure. Dan Curtis, yeah. yeah, starring Roy Thinnes as an investigative reporter and with a plot about an artist who comes back from the dead as a vampire-like killer. No doubt it got made due to the success of The Night Stalker from the previous year, but it was hardly a hasty knockoff, having creepy atmosphere to spare. By the way, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that Joanne Puflug pronounces her last name as Flug. This is based on my fuzzy memories of her appearances on various game shows in the 1970s. And now to track uh-huh. down that Dark Eye of the Scarecrow. Thanks. So thank you, Gary. Um, thank you. I, I do want to say that uh, the Norlis tapes is actually on our radar. And it's on, we originally made a list of, before we did this West Craven podcast, we originally made a list of movies we'd like to talk about. And the Norlis tapes was on there. So we'll hopefully get to that in the first of the next 10 episodes that are coming up. Um, not the first step, somewhere in there. Um, as far as Tribes, yes, Tribes is an amazing film. Um, I really like Jan Michael Vincent's TV movie work. Uh, I'm less familiar with Tribes because it's been a long time since I've seen it. But uh, he also did a movie called Sandcastles uh, with Bonnie Bedelia. That is just really lovely. Uh, it's a really interesting movie. And I, that's another movie I'd like to uh, talk about as well. Um, and then... On the Facebook page I just set up for our podcast, someone named Jean uh, wanted to tell us that she loves Invitation to Hell. She simply wrote, or maybe it's a he, I'm sorry. It says Jean, I'm not sure. Invitation to Hell was a lot of fun in my youth. That's all you need to know. Yay. Yay. So thank you, everybody. That's actually uh, a nice amount of feedback, um, considering we're not on iTunes yet. Um, It's all positive, which I'm really happy about. And I hope that we can get to all these suggestions. We have a lot of really good ones. One is, um, who brought it up? Florence. Florence is a really big fan of Lady Killers, which is, if you haven't seen, is one of the most amazing TV movies ever. It's about uh, male strippers being murdered by somebody in a Tina Turner wig. What? And And she's got a claw hand and she's killing them while they're stripping, like on stage. Yes. Wow. And it's amazing. And Mary Lou Henner and Thomas Calabro from Elmer's Place play cop partners who are actually lovers as, as well. And they have a very strained relationship because she's his boss. But he has to go undercover as a male stripper. Mm, sure. And that just drives her crazy. <laughs> and they, and That they sounds use, fantastic. And what, what's really interesting about this movie is that they use, and probably why it will never be available on DVD, although it does have a VHS release, is that it um, features the actual music of uh, famous songs. It doesn't have covers of famous songs. It actually has the actual song. So, like, it actually has a guy stripping to Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil, which is a super political (laughs) song. But Uh he strips to it. Um, And it also has Glamour Boys by Living Color. And it has a song by Jeffrey Osborne. And I can't remember the name of it, but I actually bought the best of Jeffrey Osborne to have that song. Um, (laughs) It's really amazing. It's really amazing. And that's a movie I would definitely like to get to at some point. And it actually might make a really good double feature with the calendar girl murders just because, you know, we've got females and males. It might be kind of interesting. Um, So thank you, everybody. So just before we go, let me give you all of our contact information. Um, So uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can either just look up TV Mayhem Podcast or Made for TV Mayhem Show. 
um, you should be able to find us. Uh, we're on Twitter at TV, at, at TV Mayhem Podcast. Um, we have a website, which is tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. And you can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. So just remember TV Mayhem Podcast and put it out there. And I'm sure you'll hit something. Um, and if there's anything anybody wants to promote, you want to tell us where we can find you guys? Dan? Oh sure, yeah. My my uh, my blog with the writing on it right now is uh, some Polish American guy reviews things. That's Polish American reviews. Wait a minute, Polish American guy review. Polish American reviews. Hey, go on Google and type in some Polish American guy reviews things, and you'll see what the address is. I just completely blanked on it, but you'll you'll see it there. Uh, and I'm on uh, Twitter at Danny Slacks One and uh, Daniel Budnick, one of the many Daniel Budnicks on Facebook. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Come on down. I'm reviewing things almost done with Gemini, man. The awesome. Ben Murphy series. So yeah, two yeah. episodes left. Yeah. It's the best. Nate. Um, I do, uh, co-host the hysteria continues and that's about all I've got going on. I don't have a Twitter. But you guys, um, uh, are going to be doing a really good podcast soon. Aren't you going to do killer workout? Oh, yeah. That's next. Nice. Oh, nice. so excited. So excited. I'm very excited for that one. I love that movie. And then when we are able to reconvene, uh, this podcast is going to cover uh, two, I think they're both ABC Movie of the Weeks, uh, early 70s films, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Crawl Space. Um, and I'm really looking forward to those. I love both those movies. Um, I think they're excellent. And I think that, that it's really great to talk about the classics, which um, we kind of haven't done as much as I thought we would even by this episode. So... Uh, that's what we're that's what we're gonna do. So please keep an eye out for us. Hopefully by then I'll be on iTunes and it'll be a little easier to follow us. Um, so I'm just gonna ask Nate and Dan to uh, did I call you Nate? What did I just call you? Oh my god! Okay, I think you said Nate. Okay, I think sorry. it was Nate. I think it was Nate. I'm having a tough night. All right, so I'm gonna have Nate and Dan hold on for a minute, but we're gonna close out with um, a theme, uh, the theme song to the Invitation to Hell. This is actually a cover that somebody did. It's excellent. By somebody named Mr. Extreme. You could go on uh, YouTube nice. and find him. And I highly recommend uh, you follow him. Uh, this song, his rendition is absolutely spot on. Here we go. And good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.